From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 129 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, it is great to be back together with you in 2020. Yes, it is. So it, it felt like we've been on break forever, and uh, it, I'm very excited to be back. Yes, me too. Me too. I, um, I, I, you know, part of my Christmas and New Year's. You know, this was, you know, as we were talking prior to the show and, and last week. Uh, you know, this is my first holiday season without Carol, and it, it was not easy. But one of the things that I did is I was like preparing meals, especially New Year's Day, um, New Year's Eve day, because I was having friends come over. Uh, I had on. YouTube on my television, I just was watching your Diz videos like all day. Oh, and thank you. I have to tell you, first of all, they're magnificent. That one, the multi camera view of Illuminations is spectacular. No, oh, thank yeah. you. Oh, you're welcome. But I, I, anyway, I, so I just was going through them and all the holiday ones and then going back through, you know, old fireworks shows and all that. And it just, it really lifted my spirits. So I, I just wanted to share that with you. That no, I really enjoyed watching all those. No, thank you. So. That uh, that means a lot to me. So I know I know how tough it was for you and and no one no one should have to go through the holidays in you know, in that in that state. And I know there's you are one of many people out there who probably had a had a hard holiday season and that's that's part of the great thing that we do and you know i'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back but i know that i know that the podcasts and videos and everything we do help connect people to something Mm -hmm. that does make them happy so uh i that's ultimately with with what we do yeah it's work but i hope it genuinely brings joy to to everyone out there especially when they need it most I hope so. It definitely did it for me. And, you know, like I've said before, the the Diz community really has been a support all through Carol's illness through you know, 10 years. And and then, you know, after she passed, I mean, it's just been wonderful. Very blessed to have everybody out there, you know, a part of um, our lives here as, as, we, as we ramp up, um, you know, for the new year. So did you have a good Christmas? I I did. I uh, I was up in Pennsylvania for Christmas, and so I was actually uh, one of the rare people in the United States that had a white Christmas. So uh, <laughs> it did not snow on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, but luckily uh, with where my parents live up in the uh, mountain region, just southeast of Pittsburgh, uh, it snowed like 12 inches the day or two before we got there. 
So it was until the final day that we left, we had snow on the ground every single day. And like on oh, Christmas nice. Eve, I went snowboarding. It was just blue skies and like not a cloud in the sky, just beautiful weather every single day. Some first couple of days, it was in like the 30, 20s and 30s and then got a little bit warmer in the 40s and 50s. So that's when all the snow started to melt. But uh, it was just it, it was uh, it was a very nice Christmas in terms of that and seeing friends and family. I I have no complaints with Christmas. And then the hard part was getting back to Orlando. And and once I got into our house, we still had our decorations up in here and outside. And it kind of got me into like a second Christmas spirit. But mm-hmm. then then it was like, okay, well, I can only enjoy it for a couple of days. And then I have to take it down for New Year's. So uh, the, the one thing, I, w- I was that crazy person watching Christmas movies still a week after Christmas just because <laughs> oh, just because I, I needed to have... keep the spirit alive. Oh, well, see, you have to celebrate the 12 days of Christmas because it's we don't take down our holiday decorations till Epiphany, and which was this past Sunday. So because that's the 12 days of Christmas between Christmas and Epiphany. So it's... Um, so uh, that we keep up. It's considered bad luck, you know, to take down your decorations before Epiphany. That's what you have to tell Kylie. Yeah, well, we got ours down. I <laughs> guess this is Friday. We took ours, started taking our stuff down on Friday, and mm-hmm. didn't finish up until Sunday. Then we are, then we are completely finished. But uh, the, I had to stop watching the movies because it was just it was bumming me out that. That all these Christmas movies are putting me right back in the spirit, and I was, I, I was trying to choose ones that just had like little hints of Christmas to till the very end, and uh-huh. it still still got me. So I'm yeah. sad that we're out of the holidays, but yeah, uh, wow. I'm I need it <laughs> to be done with too because. Uh, it's I. Ugh, I must have gained five pounds over the holidays. Oh, <laughs> I'm still taking down the inside decorations. The outside decorations are down. I took them down on Epiphany, but anyway. Yeah. But, uh, well, as of we're recording this, I can still look out the window from my office and see some of my neighbors who yeah, have their uh-huh. lights up and on. So, not on our court, but around the corner, there are some people who still are lighting them up. Oh, well, good for you, you know. So, speaking of movies, what did you watch on Disney Plus over the holiday season? Oh, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I've been watching so many, like, uh, I, I watch so many classic movies on TCM that I haven't seen that mm-hmm. I barely watch Disney Plus over the holidays. I think I watched Miracle on 34th Street uh, mm-hmm. just because I realized that when I was at home and asking my family like oh what do you want to watch and only my mom had seen miracle on 34th street no one else had so had to watch that and that's pretty much it you know i finished out finished out the mandalorian like everyone Mm -hmm. else in the world hopefully everyone else in the world and then i've actually i just because of stuff in the rise of skywalker i know we're going to talk about that in a second and then uh stuff in the one of the star wars video games that just released recently in the past month uh, the jedi fallen order there's it digs in a lot deeper to uh, a lot of the since both of those dig in a lot deeper to the older lore and such i actually started watching star wars rebels in a little bit more detail again to start mm-hmm. really picking up on 
where stuff from that show is in, inputted into other stuff in the Star Wars universe. And so that's been what been pretty much everything that I've been doing on Disney Plus right now. Yeah. But I I've been thinking of starting either Rebels or Clone Wars. I don't know what which one I should start though. I so. prefer Rebels. I okay. I think they're both they're both entertaining. The animation is a little bit jarring until you settle in with it, but I I prefer the storyline of Rebels. I think it's a little okay. bit more exciting and but that also has to deal with my feelings about the prequels and stuff. I some could argue that the Clone Wars animated show is the best thing to come out of any of the prequel movies. Uh, but for me, Rebels just it's it's a little bit more entertaining. I'll do that. So yeah, I have to get through some of the. I start series and then I have too many started, and so I've got, like I you know I'm continuing to watch Agent Carter, which I love, and then I discovered. Um, Agents of Shield is on Netflix. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and I thought, mm-hmm. Good, because I started that series and then just didn't have time to finish it up. So I'm gonna, I'm watching that. Then I, um, oh, I watched that live action Lady and the Tramp. Have you seen that? I still haven't watched it, but my dogs yeah. bark at the TV anytime there's anytime there's dogs on there. So that's, oh, that's funny. It, it's just too obnoxious because that's the, the one thing I've really wanted to watch is uh Togo. The, William I Defoe really want to watch that. That's yeah. gotten excellent reviews. Yeah. But my dogs would just lose their minds the entire time. So I have to, <laughs> I have to wait for a day where I can have Kylie, like get them out of the house so I can watch, watch something that yeah. I want to. Yeah. I did not care for it. It just, again, yeah, I think I'm done with these live action things Uh, it's after lion king and all that it just um didn't have the heart and and a part of it is is they can't animate like the eyes and the mouth and all that because they're trying to stay true to how dogs really you know emote and -hmm. just like and had the same had the same problem with lion king and you know, so a lot of times the faces are rather emotionless, and then they had to add in, of course, a whole bunch of new storylines and all that lineage, and none of it captured my attention. So I don't know. I was I was very disappointed with it. I mean, I stuck through it, but just to see if it would get any better, it didn't get better for me. So. Anyway, if anything, it made me want to watch the animated one. (laughs) (laughs) That's also available on Disney Plus. So there you go. It is. It is. Yeah. So, and then I, I, you know, I'm slogging on with some of the shorts and Silly Symphonies and Jeff Goldblum and all that. So, anyway. But, um, oh, okay. Oh, you mentioned Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) So. Hey, I, I I've seen it twice. <laughs> really? You must have liked it double when nope. I liked it then. I did not care for it either. So, um and you liked Last Jedi. This made me dislike Last Jedi even more than I already did. So, um oh, no, see, I, I still love Last Jedi. Uh I so I went I went on opening night with Kylie to see it and you know I at the end of the day it is an entertaining movie I will I will give it that it's it I 
you know, I didn't, it's, I don't want to say I got bored at any point, but I paid attention the entire time and I felt like it didn't slog on really. The only part that it was really slow, I feel like was in the first third of the movie that it just, you could have cut out most of that and the pacing would have been so much better. So I, 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 the first time I watched it, I was entertained, but I didn't, I didn't enjoy it and so i but i also didn't see it in a great theater the first time so i wanted to to see it again in in our dolby theater before before it left there so i went i went the other night for a a late night screening on it and it the problem is now that i knew what happened with it i was able to pick apart a lot more of it and like any scene that leo was in as much as i love carrie fisher they need if they could go back and just make a different cut where they change the story to not have her around and kill her off in the opening scroll like that would have been a warm welcome because it just did not work and jj abrams is not good at writing scripts he kept like just he 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 has the same problem as ryan johnson both of them try to be funny at times and it's their humor is just completely lost and and jj had a knack for adding in dialogue that like didn't need to be there at all and oh there were whole scenes that didn't need to be there yeah and yeah. and 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 there the only reason for some scenes were it was so that they could go on another quest and all that and yeah and i there was way too many macguffins in there way too uh-huh. many moments that yeah yeah they just tried to toy with you for literally no reason at all other than yeah i agree trying to be clever i guess i i'm not quite sure but uh it but, yeah <laughs> there there just seemed to be between these three films there was no overarching storyline like there was like this is what we're going to do here then we're going to do this then we're going to do this that there wasn't any of that even with the prequels that a lot of people don't like at least there was a thread of a story where they all connected these just didn't feel connected to me so yeah and i you know i still see a connection between the force awakens and and the last jedi because uh, you know Ryan Johnson was pretty clear that he wanted to advance the story. He he's very close to George Lucas and George Lucas aspect of it is that well each movie should be different from the last one. And that is why he criticized The Force Awakens when he saw it for the first time that it was just a rehash of what he had already done. You can definitely say The Last Jedi wasn't, but it's still tied in the two together and I feel like a lot of the decisions Ryan Johnson made for it were decisions that I mean, they were well thought out. They he wanted to connect the two, but it like a good example is the whole Knights of Ren that pop up in The Rise of Skywalker and part of his reasoning for not keeping them in The Last Jedi is that in his script, the only place they would have worked was in the scene where the the guards are all with Snoke in the room and there's the epic battle and he did not want them in there because, well, they would have just got killed off way too quickly. And uh, spoilers for the skip over this next 30 seconds if you don't want it. And then JJ goes and just does that in this one and just kills them off so quickly in one scene so it's like 
I feel even though The Last Jedi, I understand people's criticisms with it. I actually feel like Ryan Johnson thought about put put a lot of thought into the decisions he made when he was making that movie and this confirms what we have been talking about for months and i tried to tell you i was still feeling positive on it but you were firmly planted that jj might be able to get it a little right for the first one and then flounders on the second and uh, you are correct because he just he tried to do too much fan service in it and it just really went downhill yeah, it was yeah, and then the, the ending again. You can skip through this gang if you haven't seen it. When it, suddenly it turns out that that Kylo Ren and 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 Ray are in love. I thought, wait, he abducted her, he tortured her, he did all this stuff, and now she's in love with him. Dear Lord, that that woman has has quite a problem. Yeah, well, but, you know, uh, she had the abandonment issues from her parents too. So yeah, I guess. Uh, Life's hard, uh, yeah. But anyway, but J.J. Abrams still still holds the the mantle that I gave him the killer of franchises. He killed Star Trek. Now he's killed Star Wars. And hey, DC Comics fans, he's coming for your franchise. Although that one is on its last legs, anyway. But um, so yeah, so watch out there, DC Comics, because I think that's where he's working on next, right? I am not sure about that. So. I think he is. I think he signed a contract with them now. Yeah. So, anyway. Oh, well. So, so much for that. But I'll probably see it again just because so much went on and and all that. And, uh, yeah. I recommend supporting, even though it's going to start leaving theaters, if you still have the chance to go see Knives Out, go see Knives Out instead. I was, yeah, I have had really bad luck with films because I told you I think when we had our you know our planning 2020 meeting uh, last week so I told you you know I tried to see I went to see Rise of Skywalker the first time as the film started the movie theater lost power (laughs) so we were all given vouchers and I thought well at least you know I wasn't in the theater next door where they were two hours into the film so then I went and tried to see Skywalker I saw it at a theater in our town and then because i always saw it in the next town over and um the first time or didn't see it and i don't know what went on there but you know they, they run all those insipid little commercials that i resent so much because i've already paid to see this and now i have to sit here and watch commercials and then suddenly nothing nothing for 15 minutes it's just blank. I mean, we're all just sitting there wondering what's going on. And then the movie just starts. And we realize, okay, there was a problem with the projector that shows all the previews. So we saw no previews. Okay, fine. You think someone could have come in and made an announcement, but I guess there was no 16-year-old, you know, who worked there available to do that. And then... Um, then we try to see Knives Out, the same theater. And again, there was a whole screw-up with the tickets. People were sitting in our seats, and we went in. Nobody cared at the theater. And so we left. We just got our money back and, you know, left. And so I'm hoping to see it again, <laughs> try to see it. So Yeah, that's my number one pet peeve, is when I walk into a movie with a theater with reserved seating and someone sitting in my seats. Because it's just... Mm-hmm. It's... Literally, they're on the chairs. It's not hard. It, I'm sorry yeah. that you made a bad choice in your seat and so that you, you want to move to the ones that you like a little bit more, but that's not how it works. 
if the movie starts and get five minutes into it and no one's shown up yet, then go ahead and move your seats. But don't don't just sit in it from the beginning because you're mad about it. I I have tried to sit in as many theaters as possible at my AMC to know the ideal seats in every single theater. And I've made some bad choices, but I learned so then I know if I can go into a movie and say, okay, well, if I can't have those seats, then I'm not seeing that movie. And, uh, it's, yeah, I hate when people do that. Yeah. Well, it, this was so that teenagers could sit with their friends because it was like a whole row of teenagers. Oh, so even that's worse. what it was. And they probably would have ruined the movie for you. So yeah, yeah, probably. So anyway, but, um, what I hate about the reserve seats is and I like the reserve seats. It, it, actually, when I was a boy, a lot of theaters did that, and um, but the, the people then who feel like, oh well, we don't need to get there early or on time in order to um, see the film because we have reserve seats. So they come in late. And they're fumbling around. Then, then the ones, it's a darkened theater. Everything's starting. You know, the movie's playing. And they turn on the cameras on their cell phones because they can't see the seat numbers and all that. And, uh, you people are morons. <laughs> you know? I mean, and you're inconsiderate. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but that happens a lot. Oh, well. So, well, oh, just to let folks know, um, yeah, there, there's our, my little rant for it. Um, anyway, let folks know I'll be at the Walt Disney Family Museum on Saturday this week for a talk by Walt Disney Records producer Randy Thornton. And the, the title of the talk is Great Moments with Walt Disney Sound and Music. So that should be good. So if you're there, be sure to say hello. So I have Very my, good. I'm trying to decide which record collection I want him to autograph. Because he, t- you know, it, he did, yeah. the, um, you know, the, the New York World's Fair collection mm. but he did the big disneyland the 50th that anniversary anim- one yeah, yeah 50th yeah. anniversary and i think that's the one i'm bringing yeah anyway. all right well you know this year disneyland will celebrate its 65th anniversary on july 17th which means many attractions will also be celebrating their 65th anniversaries so this year we'll be dedicating quite a few episodes on waltz park as well as we're going to continue our series on Epcot. Uh, we're con- going to continue to talk about Disney films, even though, you know, from what we heard, uh, you know, Turner Classic Movies is going to um, end their treasures from the Disney vault. I think a listener wrote in and said he or she, were, they were at an event where Leonard Malton was, and they asked him about it, and Leonard Malton said the contract is ended. So it is done. So... What Craig and I are going to do is, you know, sometime this year, a couple few times this year, we'll have recommendations for films, sort of like what we did last 4th of July. We'll talk about films that maybe are available on Disney Plus that are, uh, you know, have certain themes if you want to put so that you can put together your own, you know, from the Disney vault, you know, sort of evenings and all that. So we're looking forward to that. And we'll continue our Q&As and have special guests and all that. So we have a lot planned for you. Yes, we do. Coming here. And there'll be a few surprises along the way. (laughs) Now, since this is our first episode of the new year, we are going to start out talking about Walt's first princess and her attraction that opened at 
Disneyland on July 17th, 1955 as Snow White and Her Adventures. Although on all the printed material, it would just say Snow White's Adventures. But the sign said Snow White and Her Adventures. So, so Craig, is the Snow White attraction a must-do uh, attraction for you when you're at Disneyland? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's actually one that I do pretty frequently. So I, I like to do a lot of early mornings and then late nights in Fantasyland. Obviously, those are the two best times of day to to experience the attractions. And you know, even then, sometimes in the afternoon, you can you can luck out and things won't be too crazy at Pinocchio or Snow White. Mm-hmm. But that's like. I love Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and Alice in Wonderland, but you know Alice in Wonderland. If you're not there first thing, you're, the wait time jumps up for it immediately. Mr. Toad, it seems like it gets to a point in the day where it hits that 20 minute wait, and it's always a 20 minute wait, and it never really falters from that until the end of the night. But again, Snow White has that that consistency, just like Pinocchio, where it's almost always like just kind of hovering around 15 minutes or then it'll drop down to a five and maybe it'll be 25 or 30 but then it'll settle back to 10 like it's just it seems like it's more accessible to get on so i find myself doing it it's a must do every trip but i find myself doing it multiple times each trip oh, and okay. it's yeah. one of the few attractions at disneyland that i've ever been evacuated off of so i got to walk through that track and take yeah. photos along the way Oh, very cool. I always get evacuated on Pinocchio. I don't know why. That's my evacuation attraction. (laughs) Well, it's appropriate we begin with this attraction, not only because it is based on the film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was Walt's first feature-length cartoon, and Snow White, his first princess, but this attraction is in the realm most closely identified with Walt. And for most Disney fans, this realm is the most magical in the park because it's where Walt's imagination comes to life through the characters that helped to build his studio. Now, the critical and financial success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs inspired Walt and his animators to create more films that are now regarded as classics. And when Disneyland opened in 1955, the gothic tones and frightening themes of the film were recreated for the Snow White and her adventures attraction. Now, when planning Fantasyland, Walt wanted the attractions to invoke three different moods, wonder, fun, and fear. But I've also read that the moods were drama, humor, and beauty. So, you know, Peter Pan's flight was designed to invoke wonder. Uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride provided the fun, and Snow White and her adventures aroused fear. So from the very beginning, the Snow White attraction was intended to fill the role of a traditional spook house ride found in most amusement parks of the era. Now, Snow White and Her Adventures was designed and built between 1953 and the summer of 1955. Ken Anderson, one of the art directors of the original 1937 film, adapted the script for the attraction and led the original design team that included Bill Martin, who was responsible for the track layout, Herb Ryman, who created several interior backgrounds, and Claude Coates, who brought the dark rides to life through his ultraviolet painting skill. Now, Ken Anderson was the most responsible for creating the original attraction, in part because of his architectural background. 
Anderson became one of the art directors for the film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and had built scale models of the Seven Dwarfs cottage. Uh, His experience in artistry made him the perfect person to transform the animated classic into a three-dimensional experience. And he developed the attraction script by selecting the scenes. He designed most of the attraction's architecture and painted many of the sets. Anderson realized the limitations with this new form of storytelling because his guests were busy bouncing around in the little Fantasyland dark ride vehicles. They would not have the time to appreciate the subtleties of character and plot that are important to a film. So instead of trying to tell a linear story, Anderson chose to rely on the emotions conveyed by the environments in which the stories took place. Now, Bill Martin devised a track layout for the attraction, and Martin had worked for 20th Century Fox as an art director and set designer, so he was able to take the conceptual artwork for the attraction and work out how they would realistically function in the attraction fit in the show building that was already pre-planned and built. Martin also created the conceptual track layout for the Peter Pan's flight attraction. Um, Claude Coates used the color to set the mood for the backgrounds of animated films that made Walt decide to use Coates to use his artistic skills to bring about the same sense of mood and emotion. um, And although... um, fluorescent paints and ultraviolet lighting had been used in amusement park dark rides it was still a novelty and mostly used in spook rides and it was claude Coates's expertise with colors and fluorescent paints that transformed the flat wooden sets into a beautiful three-dimensional experience never before achieved and if you haven't been to like a regional theme park that has a a version of a dark ride or a, a small dark boat ride that that utilizes black light and fluorescent paint uh but not done on the disney level then then you really haven't lived because it can be very terrible um, oh yeah it's it really <laughs> shows the disney difference and you know it's of course technology has advanced so far along uh the years and it's it's not the same as it was way back in the day when it first came out, but I I can guarantee that you know like some of the ones I've been on that are really really bad. Uh, Dis- I can guarantee that Disneyland was still better than those are in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, well, I grew up like they, we in San Francisco. We had Playland at the beach, and they had a couple of dark rides, and uh, and they yeah. They did not live up to to Disneyland's uh, you know standards. Also, like if you go to Santa Cruz Beach and Boardwalk, they do have a sp- traditional spook house ride, and they've worked on it over the decades. But yeah, it still pales in comparison to Disneyland's. And it's important to note that through all of this, the Imagineers and designers did not have the opportunity to draw their inspiration for these dark rides from similar attractions in other parks because, like you know, Craig said, because nothing of this caliber existed anywhere else. So Disneyland would be the first of its kind. 
Now, similar to most traditional dark rides, the ride system of the Snow White attraction used an electrical single rail guide track. The 13 original vehicles of the ride were designed by Wed Enterprises. You know, nowadays, we know it as Walt Disney Imagineering. But they were manufactured by Aero Development. The original vehicles contained only a single bench with no restraints and a rope hooked across the door of the vehicle. And Bruce Bushman, whom Walt had assigned to develop many of the attractions for Disneyland, he was husky and broad. So Walt ordered that all the attraction seats at the park be patterned after Bushman's proportion. Said Walt, if it fits you, Bruce, it'll fit anybody. So all the seats in the park were built to have plenty of room for one adult and a child. Now, the original Snow White attraction was created by Bushman and featured Dopey hanging onto the front of the vehicle, peering at the guests, but that wasn't used. A design resembling ore carts carved by the dwarfs with the dwarfs' name carved onto the front was chosen instead. And according to Bill Martin, I think it was Walt who chose the specific ride concepts from his movies. These themes had to include something that could be used as a ride vehicle. Snow White, for instance, had those carved wood cars. They weren't exactly mine cars, but they were something like that. And since the ore cars would be moving quickly, there was very little animation in the attraction. Now, All of the Fantasyland dark rides shared many features. Guests queued up in front under canopies designed to resemble sort of a medieval tournament. And Walt liked to give previews. So each attraction had a mural previewing the attraction. Ken Anderson and Claude Coates were assigned to create these murals because they had worked on the original films and they could paint quickly. The mural for the Snow White and Her Adventures attraction had several sections representing actual scenes inside the attraction, and in the same order, guests would experience them. There was the Diamond Mine, the Forest Glade, the Seven Dwarfs Cottage, the Vultures, the Witch at the Cauldron in her lab, um, the Dark Forest, and then the Boulder Climax. The mural also had an image that wasn't a scene inside the attraction. There was a cast portrait based on the original 1937 movie poster of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs by Gustav Tengren, except the portrait was flipped horizontally, resulting in a mirror image of the original poster. So interestingly, the mural only showed Snow White once, but had three separate paintings of the Wicked Witch, you know, or the old hag. The witch was seen in the cast portrait, but also in the cauldron section and in the climax section, pushing a boulder. The actual entrance into the show building was situated far left in the diamond mine section of the mural, which led into the attraction's diamond mine scene, whilst the exit, a creepy cave-like opening next to the boulder scene, was far right. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I liked how they, yeah. they connected all of that together. So There was another feature all the dark rides shared the guests did not catch on to. Guests were supposed to fill the roles of the title character for each attraction. So when a guest rode the Snow White attraction, they were supposed to be Snow White. 
So the Snow White attraction was designed with the point of view that the guest was the young girl in peril from the Wicked Queen. But guests were confused as to why they did not see Snow White. And this would be rectified about 25 years later. Despite the mural's depictions of the evil hag and warnings the attraction was scary, parents still took their children on the attraction, believing it would be family-friendly because it was in Disneyland. This was not always the case. Claude Coates recalled, We got some letters about the witch scene in that ride. Walt never seemed to mind. He thought that children would sometimes have to learn things that were scary, you know. (laughs) So, If guests were to believe that the attraction was from the perspective of Snow White, then the choices made in the storyline were, you know, a little questionable. The adventure started in the Seven Dwarfs Diamond Mine, continued through Serene Woods into the dungeons and cellars of the Evil Queen's Castle, then into the Dark Forest, to the Dwarfs' Cottage, and finally to the Stormy Cliffs. But the Serene Forest route featured an important decision. The fork in the road that had signs pointing to the directions of the dwarf's cottage and the witch's castle, even though the witch did not have a castle in the film when you really think about it. But at this point, the vehicle, now we're representing Snow White's perspective, made the decision to go to the witch's castle. Now, why would Snow White want to turn away from the path leading to the dwarf's cottage? So. So before Ken Anderson and his team settled for the mine opening, they had actually thought about starting the adventure in a dark torture chamber of the Evil Queen's castle. And a preliminary layout created in January 1955 included this opening scene before leading to the apple poisoning with the witch and exiting from the castle into the dark forest, then to the dwarf's cottage and diamond mine. And this rejected layout, presumably drawn by Bill Martin, concluded with a happily ever after scene, with the prince and Snow White riding into the sunrise. So let's climb aboard an ore cart and take a ride back to 1955 through Snow White and her adventures. Now, we begin in the Seven Dwarfs' diamond mine, where the dwarfs were seen digging. As we exit the mine, Dopey is seen for a second time pointing at a sign reading, Beware of the Witch. Now, in future years, there would be a similar sign hung on the outside of the attraction. Again, to try to tell parents of little children, this is a scary attraction. When we enter the forest where various animals are watching us, up ahead, there's a two-way sign pointing to the dwarf's cottage in one direction and the witch's castle in the other. We turn towards the castle where one of the gateways lead to the cottage and the other leads further into the castle. The gate to the cottage slams shut, forcing us to go further into the castle. We travel through the bleak dungeons where skeletons warn us to turn back. Then we turn to face a huge archway through which the witch's shadow moves across the wall. We then go towards the cauldron where the witch is obscured by shadows until she suddenly turns toward the cauldron, offering us a poisoned apple. Exiting the dungeon, the witch appears from behind a pillar and once again offers us an apple. 
Upon exiting the castle, we encounter the dark forest where the trees have faces and arms, whilst the logs look like crocodiles. We finally head to the dwarf's cottage, where the door suddenly swings open, revealing the witch, who offers us an apple for the last time before we turn to a cliff, where the witch is above us, attempting to pry a huge boulder from the art, art crop, out crop so it'll fall upon us. So as our ore cart crashes through a set of doors hidden in the cliffside, the witch's scream can be heard, although we don't see her fate. We then enter a pitch black room briefly before exiting to the unloading area. And some footage of this original version can be seen in a 1962 film, 40 Pounds of Trouble, which features a lengthy sequence set inside Disneyland. So, so Craig, what do you think of this original version? You know, the attraction. I, I kind of I didn't say anything about it when you first brought it up. That you know, with with the original attraction, you're you're going through it as Snow White's perspective. But mm-hmm. I actually think I enjoy a ride like this. Not that there's anything wrong with the current iteration of riding through your favorite scenes of the movie, but I, I do enjoy the idea that we are living it out as Snow White. I mean, that's it's kind of funny that that's the original idea they came up with, and then it turns into a collage of scenes from the movie. And, you know, and now nowadays, we are they are building attractions where we are definitely supposed to be a character in the story mm-hmm. going through. So it's, you know, we're not supposed to be a character that is as prominent as Snow White in there. But, you know, there's a difference between riding through and watching scenes from the movie and being an active character in the attraction. And it kind of shows the foresight that, that they had way back then that, you can live as a character in this attraction, and now that's what all the big ones are doing. You go on Rise of the Resistance, you're right. a character in that attraction. Uh, you know, even Flight of Passage, you're you are a character in that attraction. Going into to sync with with the Avatar and and learn how to take your Flight of Passage. Like it's it, it's really cool from that aspect. So I would have loved to have had the chance to see it, and it's original state i think it's it's creepy uh i think it just i i like the entire feel and the aspect of it i just am sad that i never got to experience it yeah i did get to experience it and it was scary it was creepy the witch was more stylized did not quite look like the um witch in the film she was much Mm. more scary and all that and she had like dark either glow you know green skin red eyes you know all that kind of stuff and but it, but it was all three of the dark ride attractions in Fantasyland had this perspective you didn't see peter pan yeah. in peter pan's flight and you didn't see mr toad in mr toad's wild ride and so uh, but it it just didn't click with guests and they they would go to city hall and say hey you know what's going on here why aren't we seeing these characters yeah, I, I I do understand that I, I totally get it, but at, at the the same time, it's it's what I like with it, and I love that you said that the the witch is a little bit, you know, more idealized in a way and and different from the film version, and and I think 
I think Snow White should be a scary attraction. I know that it's a, mm-hmm. a lot of kids' uh, favorite movies. It was one of my favorites growing up. But I think there is a place in even in Fantasyland and Disneyland for a little bit of scares. And that Snow White is a perfect one. I know I was afraid mm-hmm. of Snow White when I was a kid. <laughs> and I think it, oh, yeah, it's almost a rite of passage. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think I think it's important, you know, talking from the teacher's perspective and in a parent, it it is, it's it's part of our development, a child's development, to be, you know, it's okay to be scared in a safe setting. Exactly. You know, like watching The Wizard of Oz with your parents when you're little, and and you, you're frightened by the the evil witch. You know, yep. when she appears in Munchkinland. I know I was scared to death mm-hmm. when I was little, but that's that. I, I think those are, I think those are important in our development, having those experiences. Oh, so I, I mean, agree with you. Yeah. I think Snow White should always have thrills and chills. Yeah, in it. No, and this was scarier than anything Haunted Mansion did, you know, when it oh, was built. Yeah. This was much more frightening. So. Yeah, no, I, I, I can remember being afraid of, of Snow White. I don't necessarily know if I was afraid of Haunted Mansion. I know I was afraid of the graveyard in Haunted Mansion, mm-hmm. but the rest of it, I don't think I was. So. Yeah. See, I had just turned like twelve or thirteen when Haunted Mansion opened, so it yeah. didn't scare me yeah but i loved it still do well in 1959 when disneyland had its second grand opening with the debut of the matterhorn bobsled submarine voyage and monorail several significant improvements were made um to snow white and her adventures yale gracie and roly crump led the team upgrading the attractions they would later work together on designs for the haunted mansion as we were just talking about the upgrade included new mechanical witch figures individual lighting for the trees of the dark forest several repainted sets and sound effects for many of the elements of the adventure including a new voice for the witch one of the major 1959 inventions was the original effect of swarming sinister eyes floating above the sinister trees of the dark forest, which was inspired by the 1937 film. And the effect was created with kinetic mobiles, which hang from the ceiling. And we'd, and we'd go on and see this effect in other attractions, you know, mm-hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, yep. you know, later on. Yep. So, um, by 1965, the attraction had received a new witch voice provided by voice actress Ginny Tyler, and by 1968, the vehicles had been replaced by two benched ore carts, and further smaller changes were made into the original ride's interiors and its facade throughout the 1960s and 70s, but the attraction pretty much stayed the same until 1981. Uh, in the 1960s, the Snow White attraction was updated with new elements, including tree limbs, um, mine timbers, sound effects of chirping birds and fluttering leaves. Uh, the evil trees were individually lit and a new witch figures once again were installed. Uh, when the Imagineers began working on the Florida project and the, and the Magic Kingdom, the original plan 
called for three new dark ride attractions in Fantasyland, completely unique from Disneyland. If you'd like to learn more about the planning and construction of the Magic Kingdom, check out the series Craig and I did on that park on earlier episodes of Connecting with Walt. Because even if you're a Disneylander, you'll find that series interesting because it's not possible to talk about the Magic Kingdom without talking about Disneyland. So... However, after Walt's passing and his brother Roy, you know, committing to building the Florida project, Roy decided to go with what he knew was already successful and told the Imagineers to build the same dark ride attractions as at Disneyland. Although they were disappointed, the Imagineers quickly decided they would supersize the attractions and plus the shared elements of the Disneyland versions. So Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Disneyland was funny, then Florida's would be funnier. Peter Pan's flight was beautiful, Florida's would be more beautiful. Snow White and her adventures was scary, well, Florida's would be scarier. So the Magic Kingdom opened in 1971 with the same tournament-style um, fantasy land as Disneyland's, and it included a Snow White's Adventures dark ride attractions. The Imagineers worked to make Snow White's ride into the deliberately frightening ride of Fantasyland and the Magic Kingdom. This attraction had many of the features of the classic spook park houses. Loud noises, jump scares, sudden crashing sounds, unexpected flashes, and glowing figures coming within inches of the ride vehicle made this fantasy ride far and away scarier and more sinister than the Haunted Mansion, and this was all aimed at children. So, this version of the attraction focused on a foreboding atmosphere, thanks largely to the work of Claude Coates, rather than constant character vignettes. So let's climb aboard an ore cart and compare this version with Disneyland's. Now, the mural in the loading area features the Seven Dwarfs Diamond Mine with their cottage in the distance. We enter the castle and see a mirror, but not the magic one. The Evil Queen transforms into the old hag, and this was the first time a Snow White attraction featured the famous transformation effect. The witch cackles and disappears until a raven begins to shriek, and it is reacting to the witch who is now seen at the cauldron around the corner. We crash through the dungeon walls and escape through the dark forest, passing the witch or the old hag on her boat along the way. We arrive at the dwarf's cottage to see the animals peering in at them. They pass the dwarfs in their only appearance, walking up the stairs along the wall, leading to their room to investigate a scary shadow floating on the wall that the, the seven dwarfs assume is a ghost. On the way out, the old hag is waiting at the window with the apple and sliding into view on the top half of the door, similar to the film. We again escape into the forest, where, where the old hag jumps out from behind a tree and offers us the apple for a fourth time. The final scene is in the diamond mines, where the old hag appears on top of the entrance to the mine, tipping over one of the wooden support beams. Apparently, she had given up on using a poison apple to do us in. 
A minecart pushed by the old hag runs out of control and nearly hits us. Her final appearance is on top of the entrance to the vault, prying an enormous jewel uh, from the rocky outcrop in an attempt to crush us. We then enter a room full of flashing strobe lights, and with the witch's cackling still in our ears, echoing like a skipping record. Has the witch been successful with her plan to do us in? We then crash through the wall and return to the loading area. Like the Disneyland version, Snow White is nowhere to be seen. This attraction would remain unchanged until 1994. Yeah, I just barely remember this version. I would have only had one trip in uh, when I do it. But I, you know, it as I said in it, Snow White Scary Adventures scared me as a kid mm-hmm. when when we went on that first trip and i i remember it so i remember the terror in it and and as you're you're talking about some of these scenes like i i could feel it kind of being brought back up in my head and uh it was yeah no it it was scary it was scary so i i wish i would have gotten at least one or two more rides in that uh as i got older so i could have had a a better memory of the that kind of original iteration of it yeah and i did see this one i was a teenager Mm -hmm. when i saw it and you know so i already was familiar with the disneyland version and i thought this one was much scarier than the disneyland version just the whole atmosphere was was frightening the old hag the you know the witch was much more scary and menacing um she never stopped trying to kill us <laughs> in this whole thing. So it, it was very well done. Yeah. <laughs> now, a young Imagineer from Glendale worked on this version of this Magic Kingdom attraction. That's Tony Baxter. It was his first project with his mentor, Claude Coates. Now, Baxter and Coates worked together on a large rebuild of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction in 1974. Then Baxter was handed larger and larger assignments and then got to lead the team on the rebuild of Disneyland's Fantasyland. Uh, Baxter designed his designs for this realm on the work of Herb Ryman, Dorothea Redmond, and Claude Coates. And so this uh, this one is, um, this is sort of the fantasy land they always say that, you know, Walt wanted, but didn't have the money for. So this, this old European theme mm-hmm, yeah. of fantasy land was in a lot of the early um, concept art hmm. that you see for the park. Now, Disneyland's Snow White and Her Adventures closed in 1981 in preparation for the reimagining of Fantasyland. So when Fantasyland opened in 1983, it included an expanded Snow White attraction. It was 25% larger than the previous version with 100 feet of added track that went from the length of the Diamond Mine to the Evil Queen's Castle. And so what the designers did was they built out the back of the show building into an area once occupied by the mine train through nature's wonderland. This was still not enough room, and the planned final scene had to be cut and replaced with a mural reading, and they lived happily ever after. And the wild part is, like, in a dark ride attraction like this, that 
you know, they, they always they feel longer than they really are. But a hundred feet is actually a that's a good amount of uh, mm-hmm. that's a good amount of track for these very compact dark rides. So it is, yeah, that's that's wild. Mm-hmm. Now this version had two mandates: include Snow White into the ride and make it clear the attraction is scary. So to fulfill the second mandate, the attraction name was changed to Snow White's Scary Adventures. The facade was changed from the tournament-style tent to a sinister, you know, gray gothic stone facade reminiscent of the Evil Queen's castle. Now, the queue now had a claustrophobic dungeon scene to add a more sinister element to dissuade parents of young children from riding the attraction. Perhaps the most effective warning was inspired by Claude Coates and the loading area in the Magic Kingdom, because positioned directly above the entrance, the evil queen can be seen peeking out from behind the curtains to glare down at guests. Now, this version contained many of the elements from the Magic Kingdom version, including the mirror transformation gag. Now, Baxter's team improved it by having the Queen's false reflection spin around, too. Um, It also included a sudden appearance of the witch coming out of nowhere on a boat. Some of the scary elements were toned down. The witch um, old hag figures looked more like the film instead of Claude Coates' menacing green-skinned, red-eyed figures. Now, Snow White can now be seen in the dwarf's cottage scene holding a candle. The dwarfs on the stairs figures from the Magic Kingdom appear in the traditional rock drop finale, positioned so it now seems that the witch is attempting to crush them, along with the guests. Uh, There is also a runaway minecart in the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. Uh, The trip through the frightening forest reuses the Gracie Crump crocodile logs and levitating eyes, but is considerably less intense than in the Magic Kingdom. So let's head over to 1983's Fantasyland and take a ride on this attraction. Now we enter the attraction to the Evil Queen's castle, and overlooking the entrance is a high window, as we said, whose curtains are parted every few minutes by the Queen herself. As we enter, we touch a bronze apple, which causes a disembodied voice of the old hag to cackle fiendishly. As we walk through a dungeon inside the castle, we see a book of poisons, which is open to a page that reads, One taste of the poisoned apple, and the victim's eyes will close forever in the sleeping death. So the setting of the loading-unloading area depicts a forest scene with the dwarf's cottage, which hides a support column. The minecart ride features uh, ride vehicles features the names of each dwarf on the front. We board our minecarts, we enter the dwarf's cottage, and hear the music and yodeling from the silly song. We pass Snow White and some of her animal friends climbing the stairs to the cottage's second floor, then move past the dwarfs who are performing the silly song. Happy is on bass, grumpy is on organ, bashful is on accordion, Doc is on mandolin, and sleepy is on the fiddle. Dopey is standing on Sneezy's shoulders. We leave the cottage and pass by the evil queen and her pet raven, peering through one of the cottage windows as the queen divulges her plans to get rid of Snow White. 
We then pass the Queen's Castle, which basks under the moonlight before entering the Dwarf's Diamond Mine, which is full of jewels of many colors. We then pass under a branch with two vultures perched on it. A false path leads us to believe we are entering a cave, but our minecart turns towards a different path and enters the queen, evil queen's castle. There we see the queen as she stands before her magic mirror with her beautiful reflection saying, magic mirror on the wall. She then turns and faces us and we're horrified to see that she's become an ugly, green-eyed, toothless hag with a wart on her nose. With this disguise, I'll fool them all, she adds. This effect is achieved by two models, one queen and one witch rotating on different sides of the mirror, which is actually a sheet of transparent glass. Projections and LED lights create the effect of cobwebs and electricity running through the walls. We continue on to the castle's dungeon, filled with skeletons warning us to turn back. Nearby, the witch is in her laboratory, where she is creating a poisoned apple for Snow White. She heads for the dwarf's cottage in a small boat, bumping into us on her way out. We then travel along the winding paths of a menacing forest. Here, trees have ugly faces and branches like talons or grasping hands. Bats fly everywhere and logs resembling snapping crocodiles. The echoes of the witch's cackle is heard throughout the forest scene, implying that she is chasing us. We then turn toward the dwarf's cottage. The music and cackling stop until the witch's voice is heard again. The The door then opens to reveal the witch, who offers us the poisoned apple. Now, the apple was originally a physical object, but grad night guests made it a tradition to steal the apple, so now it is an optical illusion. We turn towards a mountainside where the dwarfs pursue the witch, and nearby the witch tries to roll a boulder down the mountain to crush the dwarfs and us. However, a strike of lightning with a strobe of light effect causes her to tumble to her death. Her scream is heard as we head to the unloading area. Now, on our way to the unloading area, we pass a huge storybook featuring a silhouette of Snow White and her prince with his horse as they walk away towards a castle. The words at the bottom of this reads, and they lived happily ever after. The loading area also features a mural depicting Snow White, the prince, the dwarfs, and the forest animals bidding us farewell. Now, this version became the template for all subsequent versions. On November 26, 2019, Disneyland announced the attraction would close on January 6, 2020. Uh, so it's closed now for an upgrade to enhance the story details and add new scenes that will include a happy ending. There uh, will be a new scene with Snow White in a beautiful forest setting, waking up from her deep sleep, and a concluding scene showing Snow White being reunited with her forest friends and a shimmering castle in the distance. The Imagineers will also be adding state-of-the-art audio and visual technology throughout the attraction, including new music, LED black lighting, laser projections, and a new animation system. And the exterior of the attraction will be updated with fairy tale inspired details designed to complement the recently refurbished Sleeping Beauty Castle. 
So I'm excited for these changes after seeing Alice in Wonderland and what they did there. I, I don't want I don't want it to be too um, toned down though in mm-hmm. its scariness. Mm-hmm. I'm a little worried that like some of the outdoor exterior effects they're going to do might make the the whole gothic exterior you know a little less foreboding. Yeah, you you could very well be right on that mm-hmm. and uh i i'm in the same boat i'm i'm excited to see what they actually what what they do with the attraction considering the updates they've made to the other ones but i feel like they i feel like just like you said they have the potential to actually cut down on the scariness uh because of the upgraded technology uh you know what though maybe they could end up finding a way to make it even scarier but uh it's i Ultimately, to me, I feel like this next go around is just going to take the current attraction and and actually enhance it. I know that's their wording they're using, but I, I think they are going to enhance it. And it's it did not need enhancing. I think the attraction uh, as it's it's closing because it already closed this week. But I think as of when it closed, it was a near perfect dark ride. In mm-hmm. in my book, at least, and so they they can definitely find ways to make it better, but you can't tinker around too much with that formula and mm-hmm. uh, and come out good on the other end, unless you make it scarier. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. But um, yeah, I'm worried it's not going to be scarier, but I hope it is because they could do a lot with the new technology in that you know that dark menacing forest scene. Oh yeah, yeah, to make it more menacing. Yeah, I, I mean, heck, even, you know, uh, just even using lighting to help uh, make your eyes not adjust so it's a little bit more frightening in the dark forest. Even that, that makes a big impact. So, uh, yeah. but it's, I, you know, it's it's progress and it keeps those attractions fresh and, and it, guests then keep coming back to them. So I, I also can't argue against it getting an enhancement because if that means that we have snow white around for another 20 Mm -hmm. 30 40 years uh versus you know gutting that in pinocchio and putting something in the two of them i'd rather have snow white i agree and that was the rumor for a long time and so yeah i I was just going to say that that i am so glad they're investing money in this because it means they're they're committed to keeping this attraction so yeah. Um, meanwhile, in the 1990s in the Magic Kingdom, two of the scary attractions in Fantasyland were significantly changed. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with its scary giant squid attack was closed. That's a significant change. And Snow White's Adventures was reimagined to make the attraction a bit less scary and closer to the storyline in the film. So the loading area was demolished except for the area immediately surrounding the wishing well, and a new mural covered up the rear area where the dwarf's cottage had been, because this space was needed for the new opening and closing scenes. The style of the remaining coat's material was altered to be far more painterly and something like the sumptuous pastel watercolors of the original 1937 film. So all of the artistic style of the 1971 version were totally removed. 
The mirror transformation scene was reworked. Riders now briefly face the magic mirror, who set up the story with a bit of dialogue. Yet the Wicked Queen still faces away from us. Looking in another mirror, which, um, which, so which mirror is the magic mirror? This throne room scene is the only one to not begin with the evil queen's eerie incantation of mirror, mirror on the wall. Instead, she simply responds to the magic mirror, never, and transforms. The dungeon was cut in half, and the witch's laboratory was now wedged into a corner previously occupied by a skeleton. And the other skeleton was still there, but his jaw soundlessly flaps open and closed because the warning go back was removed. The former cauldron scene space was reused and became part of the forest. Now the huntsman appeared in two-dimensional platform to warn Snow White to run away and never come back. And a simple light-up scrim effect was used to make Snow White appear in a flash of lightning running through the forest. A much less scary, frightening forest followed. The witch glided slowly into view on a boat, and all of the coat's trees were painted over to appear less menacing. One uh, which previously fell at riders now simply sort of slowly tilted forward. The witch was given a lot of dialogue in this version, explaining the purpose of the poison apple in the dungeon, explaining how she's riding the boat to the Seven Dwarfs' cottage, and, and she just went on and on. The only thing the coat's ride needed to set itself up was a trip around a wishing well and a static figure peeking out of the window, and 12 words of exposition. Mirror, mirror on the wall, I am the fairest one of all. The dwarfs appeared to do their now traditional silly song routine in the cottage. Around the corner, the witch figure had been bolted down in place in view at the window, and the basic Snow White figure, now holding an apple instead of a candle or a bird, was present to be menaced. The stairs were still there, but now unoccupied, giving the scene an unbalanced feel, because it was designed and laid out so that the movement of the mine cars naturally drew the eye to the staircase, which was no longer the focal point of the scene. In this scene, the witch, who was static, was talking for practically the entire time it took guests to ride through the scene. That's right, dearie, now take a bite and all your dreams will come true. Ha ha, now I'm the fairest one of all. From this point on, the track layout of the ride becomes all new to fit in a few new scenes. No longer would the mine cars increasingly jump away from each new danger. The fifth witch figure was now bolted down in place amidst a new backdrop of cliffs and rocks. A nifty lighting effect added some life to the scene, but not enough to hide that the witch was a static figure. There was then a brief trip through the dwarfs diamond mine and a traditional rock drop finale, although two of the seven dwarfs were used in the mine shaft and they were not included for the cliff scene. After a quick trip through the blackout room, we came across a new happy ending, a static tableau of Prince Charming kissing Snow White on her funeral buyer, and a final scene of Snow White and her prince in a painted mural heading off to their castle, enlivened by a projected effect. Two, not seven, static dwarfs appeared to the right to send them off. 
Although this version of the attraction may have been less scary, the problem is that the only moving figures were from the original 1971 version, and they had very limited movement. The traditional dialogue given to the witch only drew, or the additional dialogue, I should say, given to the witch only drew attention to her lack of movement throughout the attraction. This aspect is something the Coates and Baxter versions hid very well with staging and movements. So, so Craig, what did you think of this? Because this is the, the version that you probably know the best. Yeah, it is. And you know what? It's, it wasn't it wasn't a bad dark ride. It was actually I I always enjoyed any time I, I was able to experience it and I went on it many, many times over the years, especially once I, I lived down here. And you know, it's it, it definitely wasn't perfect. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna beat around the bush and, and try to make it seem like it was better than it was, but uh, there was there was still a lot to to enjoy about it. For sure, mm-hmm. and uh, I the only thing I, I I wonder as we sit here and talk about it is I I almost worry that when they decided to change it that you know is that ultimately why why it was so easy to then get rid of it completely and opt for something like Seven Doors Mine Train which comes later then because it's if you have a good classic dark ride you don't mess with it then again. We all know what happened to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, so that's not a yep. good. Uh, that's not even a good comparison on that. So I guess sometimes, uh, sometimes just anything that's built at Magic Kingdom is not considered sacred. But but I loved Snow White's Scary Adventures. That you know it, it makes it the fact that we lost ours does make Disneyland's extra special to me. But uh, it's it, I, I miss it here very mm-hmm. very much. I agree, and I like that there were that the versions were different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know I, that's why I wish if they're going to build attractions in both you know North American parks, they would somehow make them different. Yeah, so that there's more of a reason to experience them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now Snow White's Scary Adventures eventually eventually ended on May thirty first, twenty twelve, so it could be replaced with Princess Fairy Tale Hall as part of an expansion to Fantasyland that included, as you mentioned, Craig, the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, which opened in twenty fourteen. However, parts of Snow White's Scary Adventure live on in this new attraction. Many of the dwarf and animal figures from the silly um, song scene um, were reused. The vultures from Snow White's attraction now sit atop a crane outside the mine of the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. Uh, the crowns on the posts of the entrance to Princess Fairytale Hall are from the original Snow White's Adventures attraction. And inside the hall, there is an open Snow White storybook on display as a homage to the original attraction in this space. So now Snow White also has her own attraction in a couple of the international parks. Disneyland um, Park in Paris, their version is basically the same as the current Disneyland Anaheim version. The only real difference is that, that there is a happily ever after ending. In this variation, instead of the book saying they lived happily ever after, Doc, Dopey, Happy, the Princess Snow White are on an arch, with Snow White sitting on the prince's horse and waving... Um, the guests goodbye although it's it's the only thing moving is her hand pretty much yeah but it's still a better ending in my opinion 
I agree. I agree with you. Yeah, it took me by surprise when I looked up and saw it there. I was like, whoa. And then I hurried up and tilted my camera up, and I barely got a good shot, but I wasn't Mm -hmm. expecting it, considering the rest of the ride is essentially the exact same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it is is above you as Mm -hmm. you exit the show building. On the left side, the princess castle is seen above the clouds. The queen's transformation takes place in the magic mirror chamber instead of the throne room. And the cottage in the loading area is replaced with a mural of the characters. The, the I'm not even going to... Do you want to try pronouncing what this attraction is, how it's pronounced in French? I cannot do it, but if I had to really butcher it, I would say is... Blanche ne et la sep nine. Well, you're doing better than I would have. I I don't even, yeah, I'm I'm bad. I'm very bad. French was never my strong suit. (laughs) Well, this is French for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And the facade roof is a dark turquoise color instead of gray. And as we talked when we um, talked about the Dreams Unlimited Travel, Diz, um, London, Paris, Adventures by Disney trip that was exclusive. Um, to Dreams Unlimited. Uh, we talked about why the colors are different because uh, Paris is foggy a lot of the time. And so the sky is sort of gray. So they wanted, uh, they needed colors to pop against the gray. So you'll see that the colors are in that park are much more, um, you, you know, they stand out a whole lot more. And I, I think the Paris version, you know, at the end of the day, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I mm-hmm. think part of what we've talked about with the Disneyland version and, you know, we talked about the amount of dialogue and such in it. I think that's what makes it uh, definitely worth seeing when you're in Paris, because you do ride through and say, OK, well, while this is so similar to Disneyland, there's so much French being spoken in this attraction that it yes. feels different and as like it's uh, pinocchio was the same way and i my parents agreed with me when they went on it the only disappointing dark ride there is is peter pan because there's there's just nothing but snow white and pinocchio deliver on it Mm -hmm. yeah and um the and this version of the uh this snow white version also in paris was also a tony baxter um you know designed too so, and I, I think the Paris Fantasyland and the Disneyland Anaheim Fantasyland are probably the two of the most beautiful Fantasylands mm-hmm. in all of the parks. Mm-hmm. So, now Tokyo Disneyland combines features of all the other versions. It begins in a courtyard, goes into the castle where the queen transforms into the witch, moving on to the dungeon and passing her on the boat. And after going through the forest, guests enter the cottage and see the dwarfs singing, with Snow White watching from the stairs. Exiting the cottage, guests find the witch outside waiting for them. They pass the queen's castle and the vultures, and then they enter the diamond mines. They approach the cottage again to find the witch is once again waiting. Uh, the attraction ends like Disneyland Anaheim's version uh, with the dwarfs and the witch on a the cliff. There is no happy ending with the mine cars exiting to the unloading area immediately after the witch's death. This will be very familiar. I, I thought it was more closely resembled the Walt Disney World attraction hmm. version a little more than Disneyland's. Interesting. Yeah. 
So since we've been spending time in Disneyland's Fantasyland, what, let's walk over to Snow White Grotto and Wishing Well on the west side of Sleeping Beauty Castle. And perhaps we'll see a couple becoming engaged since this is one of the favorite locations for marriage proposals. So because I thought, you know, we might as well, we might as well talk about the other little Snow White area. I agree. Yeah. In Fantasyland. Now, this lovely woodland area has statues of Snow White, the seven dwarfs, and a few woodland creatures. Uh, Snow White is standing at the top of a cascading waterfall. There is a bridge and walkway in front of the waterfall as well as a wishing well. And coins tossed into the well are donated to local children's charities. Now, popular Disney lore states the origin story of the statues is that they were a gift from an Italian sculptor that had never seen the film, but owned a set of soaps in the form of the princess and the dwarfs. And unfortunately, the Snow White was the same size as the dwarfs in the soap set, so the sculptor made her that way. And and this was an anonymous gift. Well, when I was in the Walt Disney Archives a few years ago, I was told this was simply an enchanting story told by Walt, and that when they cleaned out John Hench's desk after his passing... They found a receipt for the purchase of the statues, proving that they were commissioned by Disney. Um, yeah, they, they were in John. The receipt was still in John Hench's files. Uh, the statues were actually ordered from Italy because Walt liked them and asked John Hench to find a place for them at Disneyland. The sculptor of the statues was Leonida or Leonida Parma of the Tuscany Studio in Milan, who created the figures from pure Carrara marble in 1958. Now, Hench was challenged by a visual problem because the Snow White statue was approximately the same height as the Seven Dwarf statue, uh, Seven Dwarfs figures, and so this is now where part of the Disneyland lore is true. The reason all eight marble figures of the same height was traced back to a set of eight Snow White and Seven Dwarfs gift soaps, all molded the same size to fit inside the package. Hench was present when the statues arrived and unpacked, and then asked to find a place for them at Disneyland. Hench told Walt that he was afraid it would look like Forest Lawn, which is a cemetery, and that the dwarfs had died and we'd buried them, and that these were the memorial markers. In typical Walt fashion, he replied, Oh, no, no. I don't want it to look like that at all. You can figure something out to make it work. So Hench came up with the idea for Snow White's Grotto for the statues. His inspiration came from a fountain he had seen in the town of Brie, north of France. The dwarfs were 31 inches tall, but Snow White was only 39 inches tall. And it would cost $2,000 at the time to re-sculpt Snow White into a, you know, a more appropriate height. Um, Hench solved this problem by using forced perspective, the same technique that makes Disneyland buildings seem taller by building each successive level at a smaller scale. By putting Snow White high atop the grotto, our eyes and brains are tricked to believe she is the proper size. Hench also had figures of various birds deer and bunnies to heighten the force perspective effect and those figures cost uh, $611 so much more of a cost savings than to have a new uh, Snow White statue re-sculpted. You know? um, of course, yeah. yeah. 
So Walt chose a location for the grotto, and the path was widened to accommodate it. The waterfall was decided upon because it allowed the designers to group the figures vertically, ver- vertically and having the bottom wider so the dwarfs look smaller. The grotto in Wishing Well was designed by Wet Enterprises and constructed in the Disneyland Mill by the staff shop experts. Walt also came up with the idea for the wishing well, with the hope the guests would throw coins in the well rather than in the moat of Sleeping Beauty Castle so the coins could be collected more easily and donated to charity. The grotto and wishing well were formally dedicated on Sunday, April 9th, 1961, in a ceremony arranged by Disneyland's entertainment director, Tommy Walker. 25 young boys and girls from 25 nations and members of Variety Clubs International were invited to the ceremony, and they heard Walt Disney give this dedication speech. Wishing long has been a favorite subject of mine. Wishes have come true for many of the characters in my motion pictures, and for me too. A wish is really the first step in the realization of a dream or goal. Down through the ages, people have used different symbols to wish for things. Sometimes they looked at the stars and other times the symbol was something else, very often wishing wells. Variety Clubs International is known throughout the world as the heart of show business. Its work helping needy children is carried out through many charities in many lands. So here at Disneyland, where we have visitors from all over the world, this Disneyland Variety Clubs International Wishing Well is dedicated to youngsters everywhere. When you throw your coins into this wishing well, just remember that wishes made here at this well will really come true for the children of the world. Now, originally, all the coins tossed into the Wishing Well and Grotto were donated to the Disneyland Wishing Well Variety Clubs International Trust. Now, Variety Clubs International was an organization made up of people in show business who helped orphanages, schools, children's charities, and other charities. When laws about donations changed, uh, the trust was dissolved in 1972, and now the money goes to local children's charities. Tossing a coin into the well activated a sensor that played a clip of the song I'm Wishing from the film's soundtrack, and it was sung by 19-year-old Adriana Casalotti, who was paid $970 to perform the speaking and sinking voice of Snow White in the film. In 1983, Disneyland wanted a clearer, crisper sound and decided to re-record the song. And although others had performed Snow White's voice over the years, Casalotti was still used on occasion for promotional events, and they decided to use her to re-record the song. Well, this was many years, you know, after Casalotti originally voiced, you know, Snow White's, um, you know, voice in the film. So during the recording session, Casalotti was unable to reach the high notes. And knowing she would be replaced, she turned away from the microphone, looked skyward and whispered, Mr. Disney, if you are up there, please help me find Snow White's voice. And on the next take, she hit every note perfectly. And that's what we hear today. Snow White's um, wishing well. Now, 
over the decades, the original statues became discolored and increasingly fragile. So when Tokyo Disneyland wanted an exact duplicate of the grotto, the sculptures were removed from Disneyland, casts made, and fiberglass reproductions created. As part of the 1983 reimagining of Fantasyland, the originals were replaced with the fiberglass figures. The originals were put in storage and forgotten until they were found and moved, and the Snow White figure was dropped and seriously damaged. She was repaired, and all of the original figures can be seen in Walt Disney Imagineering. And if you go on one of the Dreams Unlimited uh, Backstage Magic Adventures by Disney Tour, you can see these yep. original figures yep. and have your photos taken with them. Exactly. It's a it's a complete highlight of uh, your time at Imagineering, getting to see it. And, you know, I, I hope... It, this it's not an out of the way section of Disneyland, but I think I was at Disneyland twice before I had seen the grotto, uh, just because it was a path that I didn't take and didn't really kind of look back there, even though it's very visible. But you know, when you're mm-hmm. when you're still new to a place, you're not always taking in every single inch around you. So it just I I just missed it, and then you know go on the adventures by disney vacation and get to walt disney imagineering and seeing those statues and it, for me it was disappointing because like i knew from the way they were talking about them like yeah these are these are important but without having the context of them in the park it didn't mean as much but then going to the park after seeing them at imagineering it just it painted a whole new picture and now that's it's one of my favorite areas of the park and mm-hmm. i love I, I love just standing back there i film it almost every single time i go back there just in case anything would change and take plenty of photos and and you know just one of the awesome parts about this show and the the work you do is you know i i feel like i knew a lot about it after you know reading a couple things after seeing it as well as hearing the stories from my adventures by disney uh, guides on it but you know you just painted a picture that is so much more vivid about it that i now have an even greater appreciation for that area and mm-hmm. it, it makes me love it a lot more so thank you michael Oh, you're welcome. This is one of my favorite areas of Disneyland because, you know, Disneyland has, like you said, you know, you don't notice it because Disneyland has these and they're losing them, unfortunately, but they have these wonderful little out of the way places. And this is one of them. And this is also where you can meet Snow White. And I've just seen some charming interactions between Snow White and children there, Uh, you know, and, um, and, and so I love going by here. And I, I always do. I prefer heading into Fantasyland by this path rather than even walking through the castle. I always have to walk through the castle once, you know. Yeah. But I love just taking this little side path. And and you have a wonderful side view of the castle there, too. Exactly. I, I so prefer the side s- view from the other path, but yeah, uh, on the princess, other side. Yeah, yeah the, the, the fairy tale, the princess fairy tale area, yeah. Now, there's no bad way to to walk into Fantasyland or or vice versa. Yeah. But no, I agree. Uh, But I like because you get a little closer to the castle here and you can see some of the details on the castle that have been sort of carved. I'm putting that in quotations, hand quotes on there. You know, some of the downspouts and all that of the little squirrels. Very true. So that's neat. So now of the things standing out in his, his career with Disney, 
when Ken Anderson was asked. He said, I enjoyed working on all the pictures, but Snow White was the best by far. And to the same question about Disneyland, Anderson replied, I think Fantasyland stands out in my mind. Those great attractions we built, it was a tremendous accomplishment. And I, I, I think you, you and I both agree on that, Craig. Oh, the 1,000%. Yeah. 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 So, so, anyway, so th- that's our story of S- Snow White's scary adventures. I hope the next time you're in a park that has this attraction, you, uh, you'll have a, a it, it, you'll, your experience will now be enhanced now that you know the story and the people um, who brought this attraction to life. Yep, exactly. So it's, and we'll have to see what its end transformation is at at Disneyland. But uh, ultimately, you know, the, the fact that it's staying there and it's still an option is great. And you know, if if you want to live the the Snow White story still at Walt Disney World, you you do have Seven Dwarfs Mine Train that you do does not have the same uh, the same feel as the Dark Ride in any way. But at least it it still pays respect to to snow white and absolutely that's better than nothing i think snow white should be in every castle park mm-hmm. because she was the princess that sort of started it all i agree so. well now we are going to move on to our first this week in disney history quiz segment of the year so so we'll see so so craig you can get out your magic mirror and and see how you do Right. We're going to – I added an extra day in here because we've been gone so long. I normally do seven days, but we're, I threw in eight for this first week. So Fair yeah, enough. We're going to start with Saturday, January 11th. So the, the Hollywood Reporter um, ran the, uh, the front page headline on January 11th, 1954, that was based on an announcement Royal Disney made to stockholders about a controversial move the company planned to make. What was the controversial move that warranted a front page story on Variety? Oh, I mean, would it have been about Disneyland? Not really. Well, you know, it's funny. It would have been in a strange way. <laughs> I'm going to just on let the you right track. <laughs> well, the Variety headline read, Walt Disney Plans TV Show. And, of course, the TV show is named Disneyland. Um, I get it now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Royal Disney had announced to stockholders that a Disney television show would be designed not only to produce revenue, but also to publicize all of the company's product. And you remember from past episodes, we've talked about Walt's move into television. This was, this was very controversial. Other movie theaters were completely against. Other movie studios were against it. Um, they threatened to not distribute Walt's films if he did this. Uh, movie theater distributors said they would not show his films in theaters if he moved to television. Walt knew that there was no way they were going to do that because his films were so popular and the public would be outraged. And Walt moved ahead. And and um, and and a, and a new success story in in Walt's uh, history was born there. 
So, January 12th, the New York Times published an interview titled H.G. Wells in Close-Up on January 12th, 1936. During the interview, Wells talked about Walt Disney. What did the author of such science fiction classics as The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, and First Man in the Moon in the Time Machine call Walt Disney? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Probably he, we would agree with his assessment. He referred to Walt as a genius. Okay. I, yeah. I was, one of the things I was going to guess would be a visionary. So, mm-hmm. and the same line. Yeah. And he might have said that as well. Yeah. You know, in that. But, so I thought, you know, somebody as is, is well regarded as HTL saying that, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. A very high compliment. So, yeah. and, and, and there's another Disney connection with HTL. So there's a little fun fact for you. In 1889 to 90, Wells is a teacher at Henley House School where he taught a young A.A. A. Milne who had become the future creator of Winnie the Pooh. Wow. I definitely never knew that either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I didn't until I came across it when I was looking this up. <laughs> Um, now, January 13th, a Disney legend and Imagineer who was often referred to as Walt Disney's jack-of-all-trades passed away on January 13th, 1993. He worked as an architect, artist, animator, storyteller, and designer. Who was it? And a hint, we talked about him in today's episode. Okay, since we talked about him in today's episode, I'm going to guess Ken Anderson. You're absolutely right. Ken Anderson passed away January 13th, 1993 at La Cañada, Flint Ridge, California. Anyway, okay, January 14th. What high-tech service did Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom debut on January 14th, 2014? Oh, that was was when FastPass Plus and everything rolled out. So that's right. That's Remember right. it very well. That <laughs> oh, you do. Uh, that yeah. allowed reservations on up to three attractions a day. Guests who stay on property can reserve two months or even longer in advance. Disney hopes this will end the mad race to fast pass machines when the park opens. There are plans to add it to other parks in the coming weeks. So anyway, still don't like it. <laughs> I I don't either. I I am convinced this just increases the yep. the line the, the the regular lines and puts more people out walking along the paths, crowding yep. them up. I agree. So yeah. anyway, despite I still use it. <laughs> so anyway uh so i'm a hypocrite so um anyway january 15th despite plans to open disneyland without it walt disney decided on january 15th 1955 to go ahead and build this what did walt decide to have built in time for the opening day of his park hmm they were just going to put up a sign saying coming attraction. <laughs> uh, oh, um, was it Tomorrowland that they rushed at the last it second? It was Tomorrow. Yes, it was Tomorrowland. And they built that realm in six months. Yeah. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah, but still. It, it I mean, is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am still amazed. And we've talked about this many times on the show how. Disneyland was built in a year and a day. The whole park. How long does it take to build 
an attraction. And I know yeah. Pete Werner, the, our founder and boss, would say, look how long it took them to build a parking structure over at Disney Springs. But um, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm yeah. sure there was a lot less laws when it came to construction back then, too, that could allow for uh, more rapid rapid construction and such oh absolutely (laughs) absolutely and and they had one person in charge telling them what to do Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. so that helps no committees okay january 16th the sequel to walt disney's live action black and white feature film the absent-minded professor debuted on january 16th 1963 what is the name of this film that would be son of flubber that's right. Starring Fred McMurray. It was directed by Robert Stevenson. And Professor Ned Brainerd, played by McMurray, gets into trouble, again, because of his experiments with a gravity-defying substance. This cast includes Nancy Olston as Betty Brainerd, Tommy Kirk as Biff Hawk. I love that name. I don't know why. And the father and son team of Ed and Keenan Wynn as A.J. Allen and Alonzo Hawk. The film will be generally released January 18th. I like this yep. film. It's like very enjoyable. Yeah. Okay, for January 17th, which Disney legend, imagineer, and artist and color stylist who was born on January 17th, 1913, is memorialized on a haunted mansion tombstone, which reads, At peaceful rest lies Brother Claude planted here beneath this sod. I mean, I would hope that was Claude Coates. <laughs> It absolutely is. Claude Coates. Another one we talked about in today's episode. Yeah, if it wasn't Claude Coates, then, uh, you know, there's not too many people out there named Claude. No, no. And I like bringing these up so that when you're in the queues and you look at these tombstones, first of all, it causes you to look at these tombstones if you don't already. But then you'll be able to dazzle your friends with your your Disney knowledge because you can tell them what many of those tombstones, who they're named after and what and why they're named after those people. I did that with my uh, granddaughter. We were at Haunted Mansion in this past December, and um, it, it, it killed time in, in the queue. So yeah. um, that was great. And it's just fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Claude Coates was born in San Francisco, California, my hometown. His stunning watercolor background paintings featured in Pinocchio continue to be heralded by Disney scholars, fans, and art collectors for the rich and textured beauty they add to the animated film. His work can also be seen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Fantasia, Cinderella, and Lady and a Tramp, amongst others. Coates also created the backgrounds for such theme park attractions as the Disneyland Fantasyland attractions, Pirates of the Caribbean, and the Haunted Mansion. So January 18th, Buena Vista generally releases Walt Disney's live-action comedy Son of Flubber to theaters two days after its debut on January 18th, 1963. This film has the distinction of being a first for the studio. What makes it noteworthy in Disney film history? Hmm. I'm going to take a guess on this just because I'm trying to think of any other. But is this the first sequel? You are absolutely right. It is the first sequel produced by the Walt Disney Studio. Hmm. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't rare for sequels to be made even way back then i mean but yeah it's there just wasn't with disney so yeah no walt did not like to repeat himself at all 
So, but you know, he liked Fred McMurray, and these films were very profitable because they were made for not a very little. They were made for very little, and they were wildly popular. You know, in in their day. So yeah, yeah. No, I. It's I'm I'm glad that he didn't rely too much on sequels, but you know, it's it, it, there was a lot of great uh, outside of Disney. There was a lot of great franchises built uh you know with sequels like the the thin man movies and mm-hmm. even though they're some of them are a little bit cringy to watch i love all the uh the road movies with bing crosby and bob hope so i love those yeah. i have the collection oh very of nice them. Yeah. i like them they're yeah. so much fun they are mm-hmm. so. well you did a great job this first oh, you thank started you. out you started out the new year well oh thank you thank you <laughs> So, Craig, I I think that um, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, my next ride on Snow White. It will be um, <laughs> it will be a whole new experience. Yeah, when I see it because I'm, I'm heading to Disneyland in March, so um, I'll look forward to. Uh, I don't know; if she'll be open by then because they be just tight. are saying yeah. what spring aren't yep. they? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I hey, I would like to be surprised and find out that my next ride on Snow White is either in Disneyland Paris or Tokyo. But oh, that would be great. Probably not. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, our mutual friend Stephen was in um, Disneyland, Shanghai Disneyland recently. So he got me the uh, Chippendale popcorn bucket. Yeah, I, the Lunar New Year of Chippendale popcorn bucket. <laughs> I saw he was there, and I know he listens, and I, well, I hope he still listens. And if he does, congratulations! So, Absolutely, yeah. very, very happy for you, yeah. Stephen. Your your, um, your bride to be looks lovely. Oh, she is just wonderful. I've been able to hang out with her two or three times now, and just amazing. And so was Steve. So, oh, good. Yeah. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. So, well, several books, lectures, interviews, and websites were used for this episode. Uh, amongst the books I refer to is The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway. Disneyland, The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford. Disneyland, The Inside Story by Randy Bright. And Secret Stories of Disneyland and More Secret Stories of Disneyland by Jim Corcus. Some websites I used, uh, the Disney Parks blog, Passports to Dreams, Old and New, Snow White Scary Adventures, the Ken Nettie Tribute. This is, if you want to know anything about the Snow White attraction, this is the place to go. He has a lot of other stuff on on his site, too. Not, not all Disney-related. Um, the Disney Wiki, D23.com, and All Roads Lead to Disney. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? And as always, you can find me on the shows that I'm on, like Walt Disney World Edition, uh, Best and Worst, Universal Edition. Uh, but the better place to find me is on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at, to Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Check out the one that has the... Um yeah, the Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with both me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. 
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at DisneyUnplugged.com or just click on the link that Craig always has in the show notes for those episodes. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, or you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>